1: In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of our tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Kenneth Cuquier, the data editor, and on the menu this week, the history of election betting, what whaling taught the world of business, and a glance back at 1916. But first, Brazil's fall was our cover line this week. Rio de Janeiro is to host the Olympic Games in 2016, so Brazil should be in the mood for celebration. Yet instead, an air of looming disaster hangs thick in the streets as
0: the nation grapples with both political and economic challenges. Brazil's economy is predicted to shrink by 2.5 to 3% in 2016, not much less than it did in 2015. Even oil-rich, sanction racked Russia stands to do better. Not quite a carnival. Brazil's governing coalition has been discredited by a gargantuan bribery scandal surrounding Petrobras, a state-controlled oil company. And the president, Dilma Rousseff, accused of hiding the size of the budget deficit, faces impeachment proceedings in Congress. It wasn't supposed to be this way. As the bee in bricks, Brazil is supposed to be in the vanguard of fast-growing emerging economies... Instead, it faces political dysfunction and perhaps a return to rampant inflation. Only hard choices can put Brazil back on course. The country hasn't exactly helped itself. Brazil's suffering, like that of other emerging economies, stems partly from the fall in global commodity prices. But Mrs Rousseff and her party have made a bad situation worse. During her first term in 2011-14, to she spent extravagantly and unwisely on higher pensions and unproductive tax breaks for favoured industries. It may not be popular, but the time to act is now, we argued. Brazil's crisis managers do not have the luxury of waiting for better times to begin reform. And you can read our prescriptions in this
1: week's issue. Politicians invariably balance bitter pills with popularity. Before Judgment Day, I mean Election Day – But there are many ways to guess what a candidate's chances are before the final ballot is cast. An article in our United States section explored the history and popularity of one such method, election betting.
0: Though now a fringe asset class, prediction markets are in fact among the oldest exchanges in America. In the 1820s, prominent supporters of candidates frequently offered public wages on them as a demonstration of their conviction. Literally putting one's money where one's mouth is. Punters who could not afford to pony up cash would compensate with offers of public humiliation. One common wager made losers trundle winners around in a wheelbarrow. Another required them to roll peanuts up and down streets with toothpicks. Some losers had to eat real crow. Rolled peanuts with toothpicks? What? Thankfully, time brought a little bit more sophistication. Half a century later, these expressions of bravado had evolved into semi-formal financial markets. Trading volume began to approach that of actual shares. In 1916, $10 million, that's $218 in current dollars, was wagered on the photo-finish race between Woodrow Wilson and Charles Hughes. Yet stiff competition was literally around the corner. The death knell for the electoral markets of yesteryear sounded in 1936, when George Gallup of the American Institute of Public Opinion stationed pollsters on street corners and asked passers-by whom they would vote for, thus obtaining a random sample. The dawn of scientific polling made gambling odds look amateurish. Searching
1: for answers to the unknown is part of the human condition, and it translates into the physical man has always got in search of new frontiers. As an article in our international
0: section explained this week, there is actually still a lot of unexplored ground to cover. Start with mountains. All 14 higher than 8,000 metres have been scaled. The tallest of all, Mount Everest, has been climbed more than 7,000 times. But many thousands of peaks across the world are still unconquered including hundreds in the Himalayas, rising to 6,000 to 7,000 metres. And if dazzling heights don't take your fancy, try going underground. Caving offers explorers opportunities to test themselves that until recently were not even known to exist. Now South China, among other places, is offering new opportunities for cavers. Its Miao Room, penetrated in 1989, is 852 metres long and the largest by volume. The goals remain unchanged, yet the methods are modern. Exploration for the sake of being the first, and testing willpower, nerve and endurance, has been giving way to a higher-minded thirst to preserve the planet for future generations. Even mountaineers, still often obsessive individualists, seeking to pit themselves against the forces of nature, now tend to stress their role in advancing science and protecting the environment and local people. Even mountaineers. Hmm. If exploration
1: doesn't quite float your boat, perhaps a cruise might. An article in our business section this week analysed the buoyant state of the industry's major players and the current headed east.
0: On December 18th, Carnival, the world's largest operator with more than 40% of a global market worth nearly $40 billion a year, announced a record $2.1 billion in full-year earnings. 40% up on 2014, thanks to buoyant demand and cheap fuel oil. Along with Royal Caribbean Cruises, or RCL, and Norwegian Cruise Line, NCL, the trio now control around 80% of the industry.
1: 2015 put wind in their sails, but the firms don't want to be caught adrift.
0: Amid worries that demand for cruises may be peaking in some rich countries, the big three are now piling into the biggest potential market of all, China. It's a sea change. Carnival and RCL no longer send elderly cast-off hulks from America and Europe to China. Now they send their newest and best, such as RCL's Quantum of the Seas, a megaship that can carry 4,180 holidaymakers, which has been based in Shanghai since June 2015. So there is smooth sailing for the Chinese market. The number of Chinese households earning over $35,000 a year, the figure the industry sees as the point at which foreign travel takes off, has increased from 6 million to more than 27 million over the past decade. Bingo! And this contingent seems keen to splash the cash. They are less interested than Americans or Britons in boozing and spa treatments, but keener on gambling and really go to town in the onboard shops.
1: The Seven Seas have long been a source of abundant riches, of course, far before such frivolities were allowed on board. An article in our finance section this week
2: remembered the whaling industry and all it taught modern business. Gideon Allen & Sons, a whaling syndicate based in New Bedford, Massachusetts, made returns of 60% a year during much of the 19th century by financing whaling voyages, perhaps the best performance of any firm in American history. In fact, it was the most successful of a very successful bunch. Overall returns in the whaling business in New Bedford between 1817 and 1892 averaged 14% a year, An impressive record by any standard. So what was their trick? They did not invent a new type of ship or a new means of tracking whales. Instead, they developed a new business model that was extremely effective at marshalling capital and skilled workers, despite the immense risks involved for both. A model which has lasted through to this day. Managers held big stakes in the business, giving them every reason to attend to the interests of the handful of outside investors payment for the crew came from a cut of the profits, giving them a pressing interest in the success of the voyage as well. All hands on deck, financially speaking.
1: From nautical history, we travel to the future of flying. An article in our science section this week described a shift forward in the technology that gives power to planes.
0: Engine design has always been crucial to aviation. First came the piston-driven motor. Then a radical new approach emerged as the designs of Frank Whittle a British engineer, ushered in the jet age. The jet has since evolved into the turbofan. Yet another new design is on the tarmac. This is the geared turbofan, which is available as an option on the A320neo, the latest product of Airbus, Europe's biggest aerospace group. Geared turbofans, as their name suggests, include a gearbox as part of the mechanism. The development should take off. Connecting an engine's inlet fan to the compressor and turbine in its core through a gearbox should give better fuel economy and make the thing quieter, both desirable outcomes. But with increasing power comes increasing responsibility. The bigger the engine, the bigger the forces on the gearbox, and the more likely it is that something will go wrong. Moving into a new year presents an opportunity
1: to venerate the past. Such is the thinking of many historians this year. As we moved into 2016, an article in our Books and Arts section explored a novel by a British academic historian, Keith Jeffrey, which focused on the pivotal year
0: 1916. Mr Jeffrey's purpose is to show that not only was it a year of tremendous events, but one in which the effects of the war spread across most of the world, often with consequences that can still be felt a century later. It was a year of resignation and determination. By 1916, sentiment had hardened into a widespread feeling on both sides that the sacrifices had already been so great that the possibility of a negotiated peace had ceased to be politically conceivable. The only way forward, it seemed, was to prevail in a fight to the finish, whatever the cost. And it was a year of imposing negotiations. In May 1916, two rather obscure diplomats François-Georges Picot and Sir Mark Sykes reached an agreement that divided Arab-Ottoman provinces into areas of future British and French control or influence. The baleful results of their insouciant map drawing are still being felt today, notably in the turmoil of Syria and Iraq. Sadly, the past always repeats itself. It was the pivotal year of the Great War, which, as Fritz Stern, a German-American historian, rightly observed, was... The first calamity of the 20th century, the calamity from which all other calamities sprang. And a hundred years on, there are some silver linings to these bleak clouds of history. Historians have been hard at work teasing out the threads. Readers can expect a deluge of new books in the coming months. But who's got time to read them? Listen to Economist podcasts instead.
1: I'm Kenneth Kukia, and that was our tasting menu. If you're hungry for a little more, you can find all our stories on our website at economist.com. You can even read them, too. In London, this is The Economist.